I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. of proteins that plays an essential role in regulating the innate immune system known as the NLRP3 inflammasome is becoming a growing target of interest among drug developers to disrupt immune cell signaling. Halia Therapeutics is developing a pipeline of therapies that target the NLRP3 inflammasome to address not only inflammatory disorders like psoriasis and colitis, but neurologic conditions such as Alzheimer's disease. We spoke to David Bierce, president and CEO of Halia, about the NLRP3 inflammasome, the role it plays in Alzheimer's and other neurologic conditions, and the case for this therapeutic approach. David, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. We're going to talk about chronic inflammation, neurodegenerative diseases, and your efforts to develop therapies that address aberrant immune system responses that underlie a range of diseases. Perhaps we can start with the biologic role of inflammation. What does it do when the body is working properly? Yeah, that's uh, something we've we've been studying for a lot of years, and, and inflammation is something I think everyone has a little bit of experience with. We've all experienced it in our life, and it's, a, it's an important part of the natural response to damage and injury and infection. So, you know, we cut our finger, uh, you know, we have signals that happen in the body that says that there's, there's tissue that's been damaged. So we have resident immune cells that are constantly looking and monitoring for problems, and those, those cells, when they recognize a problem, they, they will... Uh, release messengers, chemicals and out, that, that go inside of our body and circulate around and tell immune cells that they've recognized the problem and they come and uh, help create an environment that allows that, that damage to be repaired. So when we've, you, know, you go out and you're playing basketball and you twist your ankle, you, know, you notice the, your ankle swells up, it's, it, you lose mobility in that joint, you have heat that's associated with that injury. All of those things are signs of inflammation. And the, the role of the immune system is really to create an environment that allows the damage to be recognized, repaired, and healed. And the whole point is it's supposed to happen and then it's supposed to go away. So that's, that's the normal process. Is it, we call it acute inflammation. So it happens and then it gets resolved. The immune system doesn't always behave as it should. How broadly implicated is dysfunction of the immune system in various diseases? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something, you know, over the last 40 years, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, how does our immune system function in disease? And so we, we kind of have an idea of what, what it's supposed to do when it's doing what, what it's, you know, what it's meant to do to protect us from damage and injury and infection. But what happens, what, what's the role of the immune system in diseases? And so we've, um, in the last 40 years, we've, we've discovered something that 
I think 40 years ago, we wouldn't have thought that this was the case, but today it's, it's accepted. Um, you know, when I tell everybody when you're young, your immune system's there to keep you alive. And as you get older, your immune system is actually trying to kill you. It's part of the, it's part of the problem of, of a lot of the diseases. So we, we, we now discovered that, that these same normal healthy signals that are there to, to protect us can actually be turned on inappropriately. And when they get turned on inappropriately, they, they actually cause more harm than they than, than they do good, and so we we know now that that a lot almost every disease you can think of has an inflammatory component to it, and that that inflammation when it's when it's called chronic inflammation when it's on all the time, uh, it actually is is part of the the underlying pathology the, the the cause of these diseases. It's amazing to see how advances in science keep revealing layers and layers of complexity with the immune system. There are many therapies that exist today that seek to address different diseases by targeting the immune system and and the cascades at various points. How is focusing on developing therapies that target the NLRP3 inflammasome? This plays a critical role in regulating the innate immune system. Can you explain what the NLRP3 inflammasome is and what it does? You bet. Yeah. So, so you know, just just about ten years ago, we we made the discovery that there is uh, this protein complex that forms inside the cell. It's a big, it's a bunch of proteins that get together and form kind of we call it a machine, a, mo- a molecular machine inside the cell. So this this big complex. Um, is not there under normal circumstances. So, you know, I, I have a PhD in cell biology. I've studied this for a long time. When I was in training, we had no idea that this existed. And in fact, you know, I've taught cell biology at major research universities, and I've never taught anybody about the inflammasome. It's that new of a discovery. But what we've discovered is under the right conditions, the cells can turn on this and, and activate this protein complex. And when it gets activated, the goal of this complex is to produce signals that tell the body there's a problem. And those, those signals will recruit different kinds of immune cells to come to the place where the, where the signal's being, uh, being released from. And that's, that's really the role of the NLRP3 inflammasome. So under normal conditions, that inflammasome will form for a very short period of time, release those signals, and then it goes away. Um, under chronic conditions, under disease conditions, that, that inflammasome stays in the on position. So the switch is turned on and never gets turned off. And the consequence of that is we're, we're, just, we're just starting to realize how many far-reaching implications that has in almost every disease that you can think of. Everything from Alzheimer's in the brain to inflammation in your eye, your skin, your lungs, your liver, your kidney. Every, every disease that we know of that affects every organ system in our body at least has some component of this chronic inflammation associated with it. Well, so going after that target, how broad a range of diseases would you expect to be able to treat? Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, it just in the past 10 years since the discovery of these, this big protein complex, there's been literally thousands of publications, scientific studies that have been done connecting NLRP3 inflammasome with different diseases. So we, we've, uh, we've actually ourselves uh, tested our drug that we've been making at, at developing at Halea. We've tested it in models of neuroinflammation in the brain. 
which you know plays a role in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis and Huntington's disease. We've tested it in uh, in inflammation in the lungs. We've tested inflammation in the heart, in the blood vessels, in the liver, and it 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 works in in the colon. It works in every model that we've tried it in. So we think this is a universal uh, mechanism for chronic inflammatory diseases. And so there's many many different applications and and almost too many to, to, to actually wrap our heads around sometimes. One of the challenges in going after a target like that is the potential to have off-target effects. How precise can you be in going after a disease with this, and how much risk is there of dampening an immune response that you want? Yeah, no, and that's that is the main challenge. And when you're dealing with something that's such a new discovery, you know, we've we've only really just known, even though we made the discovery this existed about 10 years ago, just in the last five years or so, we've, we've really understood more about the biology of how this is regulated. And, and the main concern uh, about turning off a fundamental mechanism like this is, is are you going to make people have a dampened immune response? Will they be susceptible to infections? And, and that's, that's actually, it sounds like a pretty easy thing to, to figure out, but it's actually not. It's uh, the human immune system is is pretty different than a lot of the the animals that we use in laboratory research to study. You know, we we use a lot of mice and rats and in research, and you know those those animals, their immune system is tuned a little bit differently than ours, and so it's actually quite quite challenging to predict what the long term consequences of of you know if you have a drug, let's say you took this drug every day, what what would that do? To your ability to to mount uh, a normal immune response to something like a bacterial infection. Now we have some evidence to say that that you know because of the way that we targeted the inflammasome, uh, it it it's it's pretty precise. And so we we think that that we spare a lot of the other mechanisms the body has to recognize when there's danger, damage uh, signals. And so we, we know that the body still can, can turn on and mount an, immune res- an innate immune response, uh, even in the presence of our compound. But, but, you know, those questions really only get answered when we start uh, testing this in real people. And so that's, that's one of the challenges in developing drugs is a lot of the questions that we need to answer really can only be answered when we put it in real people. Halia's lead experimental candidate is HT6184. What is it and how does it work? Yeah, it's a great question. So when we, um, when we first got interested in this infl- in, in targeting the NLRP3 inflammasome, the, the way that we got interested in this was, was we were studying how, the, how the, um, the response to different damage signals will activate an inflammatory response. And what we discovered is that the, the cell needs to put the right proteins in the right place at the right time. So there's a bunch of things that had to come together in order to activate the inflammasome. And what we discovered was there was one, one critical protein that seemed to be the glue that kind of held this whole big complex together. And that protein was called NEC7 or NEK7. And so our drug, actually uh, 6184, its, it's target is to bind to, to NEC7 and prevent NEC7 from participating in the big co- protein complex. So it's, it, it works through a mechanism we call, scientifically, it's called an allosteric inhibitor, which just means that we, 
we change the shape of the protein so it can't fit into that protein complex anymore. So we, we basically, it's like a, a, a lock and a key and, you know, the next seven's the key and we change the shape of the key so it doesn't fit in the lock anymore. And so that prevents the formation of the inflammasome complex. And in fact, our drug does something pretty, pretty unique, which is we can actually disassemble the complex once it's, once it's formed by pulling next seven out of that protein complex. So it has a, has a unique mechanism of action and we're excited, you know, to be the first ones to try a drug that, that works in this way. You're developing this for a range of conditions. Have you identified a, a lead indication? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's something we, we, we talk about every day, as you can imagine. One, one of the things that, that, you know, when you're developing a drug, um, you, you're, you're certainly interested in the mechanism of how your drug works. You know, it's, you know and I just explained to you, our drug binds to Next7. And so part of how you choose what indication or what patient population you're going to test this drug in is you, you want to know that, that your, your target is intimately involved in the disease that you're trying to target. And, and in our case, it seems to be involved in every place that we've looked. And so that, that didn't help us narrow things down very much. And so the second thing that you normally try to do is to find out where does your drug like to go in the body? Because when you take an oral pill like this drug is, you know, the drug gets absorbed in the, in the intestines and then goes into the liver and then goes in the bloodstream and goes all over the body. Well, every drug has kind of a different uh, distribution pattern, so it doesn't go everywhere equally. And so some drugs like to stay in the lungs, some drugs like to stay in the liver. And, and so we, we've, we've tried to figure out where does our drug like to go? Where does, it, where does it hang out once it gets into the body? And one of the things we've realized is it, it actually likes to stay right at the very beginning, right in the, in the intestines. And so that's one area we're very interested in is we know our drug hangs out at very higher concentrations relative to other, other tissues and organs in the body. It, it stays in the intestines. And so an, an easy thing for us to look at because of that is inflammatory bowel diseases. Another place that our drug likes to go is into the bone marrow, which is very unusual and very different that the drug likes to concentrate there. But there are inflammatory conditions that affect bone marrow function. And so that's something we're very excited to explore. Um, we were initially very interested to try to get um, a drug that would go preferentially into the brain. 6184 doesn't preferentially go to the brain. And so we, we have other drugs that we're working on to try to get more brain exposure. But, but we, try to, we try to balance the idea of where's the target and where's the target well validated with the idea of where does our drug like to distribute and like to concentrate inside the body. So that's how we figure that stuff out. And What's known about the safety and efficacy of this from studies you've done to date? Yeah, so, so obviously we've extensively studied it in the lab, in the laboratory setting. And so we, we, you know, the best thing that we have to produce or to predict toxicity and, and safety is animal models. And so we've run it through models where, where we test animals and see what effects it has on different, different tissues and organs and different cell types. Um, and then we, we, we have done some early clinical testing where we've actually tested this drug in, in healthy, what we call healthy volunteers, which are, are usually young, healthy people that volunteer to take, you know, they only take one pill initially, so they don't get a, a whole lot of risk. But we, we can get an idea of what the safety looks like. 
um, what, we, what we've seen is the drug is very potent. It acts at very low concentrations, but its safety profile looks very promising. So we, we so far, and it's still very early days for clinical testing, but we have not seen what we, what we call a treatment emergent adverse event, which just means that once you take the drug, you have something bad that happens. We haven't seen anything. So, so, so far, you know, uh, and like I said, very early days, it looks like uh, we, we, we so far look like we have a really good safety signal. Um, you know, we, we, we obviously are all, we are constantly monitoring and watching for anything that could give us an idea um, you know, that there could be a, a safety issue and we want to understand that as quick as we can. And one of the nice things about having such a potent drug is that we don't necessarily have to give this drug every day to see activity. And that's, I think that's one of the exciting things to us is the drug after taking one pill, we can see a, a long duration of response. And so if we do have some, some issues where we run into, you know, potential a uh, signal that says there might be a safety issue, we can, we can actually switch to do less frequent dosing, and that usually tends to mitigate a lot of those safety issues. So those are things that we're constantly looking at as now that we're, we're doing real human testing. What's the development path forward? Yeah, so, so typically uh, what we do um, with a drug like this is we, the first people that will take it are, are healthy people and usually younger people that are you know, uh, in very good shape. And so we can, we can get a sense of, of, you know, what type of potential safety signals this looks like. And so we're just completing, those are called phase one clinical trials. And usually we do them in two stages. So the first stage is we just give one dose, one single dose of the drug. And then we, we, we give a very low dose and then we give them a little higher dose and a little higher dose. So that's called dose escalation. And so we'll dose escalate and we'll get a sense of how much the drug gets absorbed and how it gets eliminated and we'll, if there's any, any potential safety issues. And then we do what's called a multiple sending dose where we give, you know, 10 days in a row or 14 days in a row where every single day they take the drug and we do the same thing. We, we ask how is it absorbed? how it's eliminated, and what potential safety signals. So we're wrapping those studies up right now. Uh, we should be done with both. We, we're done with the first stage. In the second stage, we should be done in this, just in the next couple months. And as soon as we finish, then, then we will roll into what's called a phase two clinical trial. And usually in a phase two trial, we're, we're, at, we're taking real patients that have real diseases that we think are our drug will have a benefit in, and we'll test that in those, those patients. So we currently have two different phase two trials that we're designing right now. We, we work with the FDA and we work with clinical investigators to make sure that, that uh, the clinical trial design is appropriate and uh, doesn't put patients at risk, but, but allows us to figure out whether the drug actually does what we think it does. And so that's the exciting part is after you get through this first stage, the second stage is phase two trials, you're treating real, real patients and you get an idea, does this do what we think it does? So all the work that we've done, you know, really kind of points to this next, next phase. And so we're excited to get those underway. One of the interesting things we've seen is a growing number of companies approaching neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, as inflammatory conditions. What's the case for approaching these diseases as inflammatory diseases? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's been a, a real, you know, just in the past few years, a real appreciation that that 
you know, our brain um, has a different way of dealing with inflammation than the rest of the body. So our brain is what we call an immune privilege site. So we don't have the same kind of immune system in our brain as we do the rest of our body. And, and that makes sense because we, you know, our body will do anything to protect our brain. It's, 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 the, it's the control center of everything. And so we, we try to cordon that brain off. In fact, we have something called the blood-brain barrier that's, a, that's a, a protective mechanism that keeps things that float around in the rest of our body from getting into our brain. So for many years, we, we, we actually asked the question, well, does the brain even have inflammation? And, and we know now it does. And it, it turns on inflammation as using different types of cells, but the mechanism is still very much the same. And so as we've started to realize that brain, the, our brains actually do induce inflammatory responses, and the connection between inflammation and neurodegeneration, I think, is now very clear that the more inflammation we have, the more degeneration of, of, uh, of nerves and our neurons in our brain. Um, so, so, you know, the big challenge has been, how do we block that? How do we get drugs across the blood-brain barrier into the brain that can affect these mechanisms? And so we've, we started out as a company really focused on, on Alzheimer's disease as a, as a, as a primary focus. And it's still a very, a very important focus for the company. It's something we think about a lot. And, and how do we get a drug that can target those, those chronic inflammatory signals in the brain and how can we turn that off and how can we measure the effects of that? And so all of that, I think, is, is something we're actively researching right now. In the case of these conditions, you're developing a, what's called a, a LARC2 inhibitor. This is for Alzheimer's disease and a separate one for Parkinson's disease. These are both in preclinical development, but can you explain what LARC2 is and how it interacts with the NLRP3 inflammasome? Sure, yeah. So, so LARC2 is, um, is a member of a family of proteins called kinases. And uh, these kinases are enzymes that, that, that regulate the activity of other proteins. So, so they will, they will um, activate or in inactivate different proteins inside the cell. So LARC2, as we've known about for a few years, that, that if you have a, a genetic polymorphism or mutation, you could call it, you have a different DNA sequence that encodes a different flavor of the LARC2 protein, you actually have a higher risk for developing uh, neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's disease. And that's, that's been studied pretty extensively. We actually discovered that, um, that a protein that LARC2 is involved with plays a very important role in protection from Alzheimer's disease. And so we got interested in LARC2 in Alzheimer's disease. And what we discovered is that, that uh, this protein that, that uh, LARC2 regulates plays a really important role in activating the LRP3 inflammasome. And the way that it does it is um, the protein that LARC2 regulates in Alzheimer's is called RAB10, R-A-B-10. And RAB10 is kind of a traffic cop inside the cell. It, it, it tells proteins where to go. It sends some proteins to the membrane. It sends some, some proteins to other places inside the cell. And as I mentioned earlier, the inflammasome is very sensitive to getting the right proteins in the right place at the right time. And so RAB10 is really, really critical. The function of RAB10 is really critical to organize these, these protein complexes. And so what we've discovered is that people that have mutations in RAB10 
have less incidence of Alzheimer's disease. So we thought, well, if we can target LARC2, we could, we could diminish the activity of RAB10 to a level where we could actually see protection uh, for, from neurodegeneration. And so that's what our focus is. And we've been able to show that, that our compound can actually uh, reduce neuroinflammation downstream, or sorry, upstream of, uh, of NLRP3 by, by changing this uh, regulation of where these proteins are going inside the cell. And is the expectation that this might halt progression? Could it, could it uh, slow progression or would it be uh, even possible to reverse disease? Yeah, um, so, so in, in model systems, we, we certainly show that we can stop the progression of the, the neuroinflammation and the damage that caused by neuroinflammation. Now, one of the things that we've seen in, in the lab is if you can stop neuroinflammation, you give, you give the body a chance to repair itself. And, and so we, we, we're hopeful that if you can turn off inflammation in the brain, that the brain can help start rewiring itself to bring back some of that function. And, and the brain is actually a very, uh, we call it a plastic organism, so it can mold itself and remodel itself. And so if you can get rid of the underlying problem, the, the inflammation, and get rid of that, you potentially could, could, could start to see improvement. And so that's what I think people are so excited about is that neuroinflammation, the, the role that neuroinflammation plays in these degenerative diseases if we can turn it off, there's a potential that we not only can stop the progression, but we can actually see real healing start to happen and rewiring that we know the brain can do. We just have to get the, get the inflammation out of the way so the brain can re heal itself. I think one of the challenges for a company like yours is when you've got something that could have such broad applications is how to prioritize indications. What, are you, what is your thinking on that? How are you approaching that issue? Yeah, so it's, uh, like I said, it's something that it keeps me up on, at night, you know, just making sure that we've thought through everything and that we are, we're choosing the right, uh, making the right decisions. I think one of, the, one of the things that smaller companies like Halea, we're a small company, um, one of the things that, that we've uh, seen in the past that we've done well is being able to choose rarer indications to start with. So, so typically, if you choose something, a, a disease that is pretty rare, there, there's not as many treatment options for those patients. And so when you introduce something new, you, you can actually accrue patients onto clinical trials pretty quickly. And so that's, that's one of the challenges that you run into is if you, you try to develop a drug like ours that could work in many different, you know, very, um, very prevalent diseases, the, the problem is there's usually a lot of therapies for those patients. And so getting people to stop what they're taking and to switch over to something new is actually hard. And so what, what we typically do as a smaller company, the way we prioritize is to say, is there a population of people where this mechanism is really important, but they don't have any other options or don't have many other options for treatment? Those are kind of the places where we try to focus first because those people are very motivated to say, oh, there's something new to try. I want to try that. So, so that's typically what we do as a smaller company. It, it also provides some advantages for us. From the development standpoint, um, working with the with the FDA, um, the FDA is very motivated to make sure that people that have rare diseases have access to new medicines. So we can we can take advantage of some faster track type of development. And so that's kind of the the tried and true model. There's a lot of um, 
there's a lot of uh, motivation, obviously, to try to you know show how broadly your drug can work in many different places. But you have to you have to be very careful because these cl- clinical studies are very expensive, and and you know obviously as a small company we don't have infinite resources. We don't have you know, a lot of bandwidth to manage multiple things. So we, we really spend a lot of time making sure and testing ourselves and getting external validation that, you know, we should try this first. And if it works here, then we can try the next thing. So so those are the kinds of things that we wrestle with every day. Given the resource reality of developing a broad pipeline, what's your approach to partnering and how do you see that fitting in? Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, obviously, when you discover something new that uh, has a lot of, of potential broad applications, you get a lot of people interested in what you're doing. And I think we've we've had a lot of uh, potential partners that have come to us and said, we're very excited and interested in what you're doing. The, do- the, the flip side of that coin is when you're trying something new, the risk, you know, w- the, the red flags for risk go up because no one's tried it before. You know, people are nervous about, well, do you really know what the long-term consequences are of shutting this off? And so there's a balance there. And I think as a company, what we're interested in is trying to to prove the the mechanism of action of the drug to show it really does what we think it does and it moves this biology and that we also can can deliver this in a safe way to people. And and if we can take it far enough in clinical development, then I think we'll we'll have a lot of people interested in working with us. And and we've we've heard that uh, from many different uh, uh, you know large and mid-sized pharmaceutical companies. There's a lot of interest in this particular pathway. So I would expect that that you know if we can see a good signal in these phase two clinical trials that we're planning right now, we'll we'll have we'll have a good opportunity to to partner with somebody. David Beers, president and CEO of Halia Therapeutics. David, thanks so much for your time today. It was great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.